This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome to Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm your host, Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider, trying to embrace a genre I've always kept at a distance. What do Al Capone, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and Jack the Ripper have in common? Aside from being disreputable fellows, they are all a part of the story of Grace Wilson, the queen of the National Barn Dance. <laughs> Where do you feel most comfortable? Let's say you're having one of those world-weary days. You've been working hard, times are tough, your body is craving rest, food, warmth. Where do you go? What do you do? What's your place of solace, your happy place? At the birth of commercial radio, stations across the U.S. were asking similar questions. Radio was a unique format, more intimate, personal, and family-oriented than vaudeville, more immediate and dynamic than phonograph recordings. Radio personalities were invited into people's homes, and at least in the case of WLS, broadcast out of Chicago beginning in 1924, radio programmers took this personal invitation seriously. The home was sacrosanct. Depending on your audience, only certain people were invited in. What guests would be welcome? Who would preserve domestic rest and add to its happiness? But old friends and old songs always get along here in the old hayloft, folks. Just like that little street where old friends meet. So let's welcome that old favorite and the girl with a million friends, Grace Wilson. Grace Wilson is the longest-running performer on WLS's series of radio programs, The National Barn Dance, which aired every Saturday night from 1924 to 1960. She was invited in every week. She was described as neighborly, as sweet, as understanding, and most often as the girl with a million friends. While more of a vaudevillian singer of sentimental songs than a country singer, Grace Wilson was an enduring performer and a necessary type of character for the image that the National Barn Dance was trying to cultivate. Maybe, for many people, Grace Wilson was just this thing a weary, restless life needed. A little comfort, a little familiarity. It may be that Grace Wilson was looking for the very same thing, some stability, and found it at her long-standing tenure at the National Barn Dance. 
This episode is a little bit frustrating for me as someone trying to relay the complexities of the lives of these artists while we tell the story of country music through the women who built it. Grace Wilson's life has only been told through the radio program for which she worked, a radio program that deftly crafted the images of its artists, with careful obfuscation of the whole truth. Radio mates of Grace Wilson, the girls of the Golden West, for example, were from Minnesota, and yet the radio station told its audience they were from Muleshoe, Texas, in order to align with the Western image they were trying to project. With Grace Wilson, the only interview I've been able to find was conducted by her radio station and sent out to its listeners in its monthly fan magazine, Standby. I have no way of parsing the authentic Grace Wilson from the manufactured Grace Wilson, so take every bit of information I give you on her life with a grain of salt. I bet that her life as a vaudevillian actress turned radio star holds many stories that are lost to time. Born in Owasso, Michigan in 1890 to vaudeville actress and singer Amalia Kelp, Grace began receiving musical training from her mother when she was just a small child. Of this experience, Grace says, I guess she thought for a time I was just about hopeless. She used to sit down at the piano and coach me when I was about four years old. It was quite a time, though, before I could even begin carrying a tune, and I'm afraid my mother was discouraged. The training, it seems, paid off. Grace made her stage debut at the age of four in a production of Cyrano de Bergerac, along with her mother and famed British actor Richard Mansfield. An interesting side note, Richard Mansfield became quite famous in England for playing the title roles in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He performed his murderous duplicity so well that he was suspected as being Jack the Ripper for a time. There! There he is! There's your man! But, Doctor, this is impossible! I know it is! But there's your man! I'm sorry, sir. You appear to be serious, but... Look! In Cyrano de Bergerac, Grace played the part of a small boy and is said to have impressed Mansfield with her performance, enough so that she and her mother began a career of touring the country on the vaudeville circuit. It may be that this rootless life was more Amalia's dream than Grace's. Grace tired of living out of a trunk and longed for a stable home. In her early career, she was among the first to popularize the 190 classic Bill Bailey, Won't You Please Come Home? Won't you come home, Bill Bailey? Won't you come home? I moon the whole night long. Later, she worked in musical comedy with Nora Bays and Jack Norworth co-writers of the song Shine On Harvest Moon. Shine on, shine on harvest moon Up in the sky I ain't had no lovin' since January, February, June or July Snow time Grace and her mother worked hard, but this hard work meant spending most of their time away from her father and brother back home in Michigan. But, said Grace, the joy of making good in the work Mother and I had chosen was our greatest pleasure. At the age of 24, Grace found a little domesticity in marrying Chicago surgeon Henry Richards in Marion, Indiana in 1914. 
but their marriage didn't last long, with Richard's passing away in 1922. With no other path forward, Grace resigned herself to rejoining the vaudeville circuit for a life on the road. That is, until an opportunity in radio presented itself. While Grace was making her mark on the vaudeville circuit, radio was being developed into a commercial medium. The gains that inventors were making in the late 1800s and early 1900s were put on hold when the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, with the U.S. government placing a ban on owning or operating a radio for personal use. This ban was not lifted until April 1919 for owning a radio, and not until October 1919 for transmitting radio signals. Early attempts at non-military radio broadcasts were experimental and largely unorganized. A person with a radio might scan stations and pick up stray voices or orchestras with little by way of programming or advertising. That is, until Westinghouse entered the picture in 1920, manufacturing advancements in radio technologies and creating the first station with regular programming, and advertising for Westinghouse, of course, in Pittsburgh with KDKA, replicating their success in New York, Boston, and then Chicago. The radio craze had begun, and by the end of 1922, there were 500 registered stations on the airwaves across the country. At this time, people were still figuring out what to do with this medium. Some were using the radio for news and weather, some for educational purposes. Tufts College, for example, offered correspondence courses via radio lectures. And of course, they were using it for music. The early days of WLS was a try-anything, scattershot approach to programming. Put something on and see who listens, and the only way to see who listens is by letters to the station. Many fading vaudeville stars found a new home on the radio. The ease of this transition from stage to airwaves created the opportunity for radio programs to follow the vaudevillian blueprint of variety shows, pairing pop, old-time and sentimental musical numbers with drama and comedy routines. Grace Wilson was one of these vaudevillians who found a second act on the radio, first appearing in Elgin, Illinois in 1922. As radio and radio networks grew, so did the opportunity for companies to advertise to both local and national audiences. The Sears Corporation, based in Chicago, saw Midwestern farmers in Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Michigan as potential customers, and in acquiring a radio station, they added the call letters WLS, world's largest store, and set out to program content that would appeal to the Midwestern farmer. At the time of WLS's first air date, April 12, 1924, WLS was committed, in word at least, to an inclusive agenda on American music. Here's what they said. Every distinctive American type of music has a part in WLS programs. Mountain ballads, cowboy songs, barn dance tunes, Negro spirituals, plantation songs, work songs, Indian chants, and American popular music. Here's how Grace Wilson describes that first night of broadcasting. She was there. The opening night is the most outstanding in my mind. There were many people there, including a number of celebrities who were on the program. I remember how badly William F. Hart and Ethel Barrymore had Mike Fright. Peggy Hopkins Joyce was appearing at a Chicago theater then, and she was also on the broadcast. As she started for the microphone, she tripped over a little table and nearly fell. Early station manager George Bigger adds to this story. 
I'll never forget seeing William S. Hart, the movie cowboy hero, shut his eyes, clench his fists, and recite Invictus with perspiration pouring down his face. Or how Ethel Barrymore, smitten by fear of that little Mike, couldn't utter a word. The beloved Duncan sisters, Topsy and Eva, were there, and so was George Beban, noted movie star. Grace Wilson, the girl with a million friends, sang at the end of the Sunset Trail. Then a new song by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Just to clear up any confusion, when I say Ralph Waldo Emerson in this episode, I'm referring to a musician, not the American Transcendentalist. In the second week of programming, WLS tried a program they called the National Barn Dance, intended to replicate the old-time rural tradition of the Saturday Night Barn Dance. In fact, its earliest incarnation primarily featured fiddle tunes, as if to soundtrack barn dances happening simultaneously all over the Midwest. Grace Wilson was on this first broadcast, singing Bringin' Home the Bacon. I'm bringing home the bacon to my mammy. She's way down and making no man. She waited for me patiently. Yes, indeedy. Oh, you ask me why I'm shaking. I'm excited. Cause I'm a taking that 515 back where I wanna be. Here's what the 1934 WLS publication Family Album had to say about that night. We often refer to Grace as the bringing home the bacon girl, and the reason is that a long time ago, when WLS was young, Grace was one of the singers, and when she sang the song with that title, there were so many letters asking her to sing it again that it became one of her most popular numbers. When Grace sings, she just walks right into your home and into your heart. We can tell you, speaking for the folks here at the station, that she is just the kind of lovable, delightful person that she sounds like on the air. Edgar L. Bill, the first station director, had this to say about the reason they included the National Barn Dance. We had so much highbrow music that first week that we thought it would be a good idea to put on some old-time music. The truth was that we doubted the advisability of putting on old-time fiddling. Tommy Dandurand with his old-time fiddlers and one or two other acts appeared on that first night. After we'd been going about an hour, we received about 25 telegrams of enthusiastic approval. It was this response that pushed the barn dance. And incidentally, it hasn't missed a Saturday night since. It was only natural that the barn dance should become popular. Here were thousands of farm families in the audience who knew firsthand the fun and the informality of this type of entertainment. In the cities, there were thousands who had come from rural communities and had heard the old folks tell of the good old times. To all these, the barn dance was as refreshing as a breath of spring air. So from the start, the barn dance was popular enough to be a regular program. However, apparently, it wasn't lucrative enough to pay the performers. At first, many of the artists appeared without pay. Here's where Al Capone gets involved. One of Al Capone's girlfriends appeared one night on the barn dance at the request of the station. Al Capone was in attendance, and he watched the performance. After his girlfriend performed, he turned to the producer and said, Well, don't she get paid? Of course the station would pay Al Capone's girlfriend, and so they did. Grace Wilson took in the whole event, and she was the one who began to demand payment for the performers at WLS. 
Before going further, just a note that there were very few recordings of the National Barn Dance broadcasts. And it wasn't common, because it wasn't lucrative, for radio acts to record for record companies. Most of what I play will be from the rare phonographic recording, as in Grace's 1927 recording of Bringing Home the Bacon, which you heard earlier. Grace was a hit. How did WLS know? People wrote into the station to let their opinions be known. People wanted to hear Grace singing Bringing Home the Bacon again, and she obliged in many national barn dance broadcasts, earning herself the nickname the Bringing Home the Bacon Girl. Though based in the metropolis of Chicago, WLS and the National Barn Dance saw themselves serving and catering to rural Midwesterners. The Sears department that ran WLS was the agricultural wing. If they could capture the loyalty of the Midwestern farmer by helping that farmer be more successful at farming, then the farmer would be more likely to spend their money at Sears. I guess that was the rationale. Intentionally targeting the Midwestern farmer through a medium as intimate as the radio meant leaning into Midwestern conservative values and traditional styles, and away from anything that smelled of modernism, urbanism, or foreignness. Yes, we're back at coded racial language. You may remember episode 3 of Wildwood Flower, where we talked about Henry Ford and his anti-Semitic, anti-black campaign to stem the tide of jazz in the U.S., by streamlining the production and instruction of old-time fiddling and square dancing. The same drive is happening in the creation of the National Barn Dance. The cultivation of an old-time image, artificial nostalgia for simpler times, targeted to a population, the rural Midwestern farmer, whose status was already waning by the early 1920s as the U.S. began to trend towards cities. 1920 marks the first time in U.S. history where there were more urban residents than rural. The early 1900s also saw migration of Southerners to the Midwest. Surely these Southern transplants found some connection to home through the old-time stylings of the National Barn Dance, but it doesn't appear that Southern migrants comprise much of the National Barn Dance audience. Here's program director George Bigger again. It was but natural that we booked an old-time music on Saturday night. We leaned toward the homey, old-time, and familiar tunes, as we were primarily a farm station. It can get a bit confusing trying to figure out exactly what was the National Barn Dance in these early days, since we don't have recordings of the broadcast and the station did not write scripts for the show until 1930. First of all, we know it was a Saturday night radio program on WLS that aired from 7.30 to midnight with a cast of regulars, Grace Wilson being the only cast member to endure its run through 1960. Other cast members? Smiling Bill O'Connor... Eddie Allen, the Dixie Harmonica King, Henry Burr. Are you lonesome tonight? Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? Old time fiddler Tommy Dandorand. Square dance caller Tom Owen. Hey, 
Walter Patterson, the Kentucky Wonder Bean with his double barrel shotgun, being a harmonica and a guitar. Pie Plant Pete. I'm a stranger in your city, boys trying to do what's right. Don't think because I'm a railroad bum that I am not alright. Pocketbook is empty and my heart is full of pain. A thousand miles away from home, just waiting for a train. Stepped up to the conductor to give him a line at all. Said he will add if you're fair, I'll see that you don't walk. He's a fair nominee, boss, take pity on me, I'm poor. Get out, get out, you son of a gun, and he sealed the boxcar door. Chubby Parker with his banjo singing Nickety Nackety Now Now Now. I married my wife in the month of June Nickety-nackety, now, now, now And I courted her home by the light of the moon Nickety-nackety, hey, John Dafferty, Willity, Wallity, Rustical Twality Nickety-nackety, now, now, now The Ford and Glenn singing team Little sleepyhead, sleepyhead Roll out of Guitar team of Cecil and Esther Ward, organist Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Tom Corwine, a barnyard animal imitator. The first true star of the barn dance appeared in 1927, Bradley Kincaid, a singer of old folk ballads. Lord, Lord, my pretty little pink, Lord, Lord, I say, Lord, Lord, my pretty little pink, I'm going away to stay. Cheeks as red as a red, red rose, her eyes like diamond brown. I'm going to see my pretty little miss before the sun goes down. Fly around my pretty little miss, fly around my daisy. Fly around my pretty little miss, you almost drive me crazy. Kincaid left the barn dance in 1931 for WLW in Cincinnati. One of the early announcers was George Hay. He was hired away by WSM in Nashville so they could start their own barn dance program modeled after the National Barn Dance. The WSM barn dance would take on a more southern, rootsy feel and would come to be known as the stalwart country music institution, the Grand Old Opry. Yes, the National Barn Dance was an immediate precursor to the Grand Old Opry, each with their own regional twist on the old-time barn dance, filtered through traditionalism and capitalism. We'll talk about the Grand Old Opry soon enough, but not as much as you might think, as the National Barn Dance takes the spotlight on Wildwood Flower, not only because it came first, but primarily because it featured, by design, many more women in its cast than the Grand Old Opry did in the same time period. Of course, the Grand Old Opry found a way to endure, whereas the National Barn Dance eventually became obsolete, thanks to rock and roll and television in the 1950s and 60s. The National Barn Dance was not only a four-and-a-half-hour radio program, it also became a live stage show, broadcasting from the 8th Street Theater in Chicago. Over the years, millions would make their way to see their favorite stars in person from all over the Midwest, and many would be turned away due to capacity limitations. The stars of the barn dance would find their way into other WLS programming throughout the week and would appear at state fairs and other venues in the listening area. 
Though record recording among barn dance stars wasn't popular, Grace did record six sides in 1927. Grace Wilson unfortunately falls into the same racist trap as her contemporary Adeline Hood, another vaudeville star who sang vaudeville pop songs through a pseudo-southern lens. One of Grace's songs was Honey, Stay in Your Own Backyard. It's a song about a black child wanting to play with white children, but his mother tells him to stay in his own backyard. She also records Carry Me Back to Old Virginia. has a complicated history written by an african-american vaudeville performer the song takes on different meanings depending on who sings it ray charles has an excellent version of it you ought to carry But it doesn't sound so good coming out of Grace Wilson's mouth. Less noxious songs recorded by Grace Wilson are I Wonder When, which was the B-side of Bringing Home the Bacon. I wonder when we'll be together. I wonder when I wish I knew. Cause until then, I know I'll never love no one else like I love you. I can hear a little bit of 50s pop country in that song. And of these recordings, probably the furthest from country or southern would be Promise Me That You Won't Forget Me with the B-side Forget Me Not Means Remember Me. Forget me not means remember me In 1928, Sears was not turning a profit from its WLS investment and sold the station to Prairie Farmer Magazine, which sold farm supplies. The new station manager, Burridge D. Butler, doubled down on the mission of WLS and the National Barn Dance to become like family in the homes of its listening audience. Butler wanted a wholesome, uplifting show and would not allow songs of drinking or marital infidelity. Burge D. Butler bristled at the term hillbilly and would not allow anything that smelled of a Hollywood-contrived hillbilly image. They wanted to reenact something natural to the Midwest. It's said that if Butler saw somebody wearing a cowboy outfit, he would order the star to get rid of their fancy getup and put them in overalls and a calico shirt. Butler also policed the level of sexiness of the women. If he saw a female performer wearing too short of a skirt or something that had a little too much fringe on it, he had been known to say, this isn't us, that's Hollywood. People didn't drive hundreds of miles to see a girly show. 
They came to see their friends on WLS, friends they have faith in and think they are nice people. In 1930, a new director arrived on the scene, John Lair. We'll talk more about John Lair in episode two, but suffice it to say for now that when Lair arrives, Wilson begins to take more of a supporting role. Let's talk a little bit about the two WSL publications that were designed to endear WSL to the listener. Stand By, which ran monthly from 1934 to 1937, and the WLS Family Album, which ran every year from 1930 to 1957. These are all online and are a lot of fun to look at, though they are carefully crafted, canned presentations of a happy family. Here's how Burridge D. Butler expressed the reasoning behind the magazine in the first issue. He says, Our weekly is not to tell you about WLS, but to express WLS. WLS is very human and friendly, and is at its best when it expresses personality in the most natural way. You hear a friendly voice in your home that comes to you out of the air. When the song is ended, you wish to know the singer because you warm in response to the personality that beckons to you in friendship so naturally. It is not the art of the play actor culturally correct, but the heart and emotion of the unseen singer that goes out to you in the song. And so, with paper, type, and pictures, we wish to express that appealing charm of the new art. Printing is called the art preservative of all the arts. Can we, with friendly naturalness, bring each week to our listeners' radio in visual form? This is our experiment with our new magazine. For me, one of the best parts of standby is the listener letter section. Here are a few listener letters that I find amusing and revealing. And as a special favor, I wonder if the singers could sing a song through before they giggle. It is great to be jolly, but not in the middle of a song. Mrs. E.E. E. Christensen, Oral, South Dakota. I listened to your program Saturday night. I was looking for cowboy songs, as I like a good cowboy song very much. I heard several that were supposed to be, but they sounded more like opera. Have these singers ever seen a cow outside a butcher shop? When Grace Wilson sang Little Old Church in the Valley the other night, she was fine. I really think it is too bad to spoil her work with such songs as My Mom. There are so many nice mother songs, I don't care for that one at all. She's really a fine singer when she gets good songs, but so often she doesn't. I wonder if Arky wouldn't be much more popular if he'd sing his songs without laughing. Once when he was in our city, I wish some of the others would quit acting up and spoiling really pretty songs. I've heard the same complaint about Lulu Bell. Also, I wish you'd put more music in Meet the Folks program. PLF, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Let me interrupt these letters to introduce you to Pat Buttram, who joined the National Barn Dance in 1933 after giving a humorous and prompt interview with a WLS reporter at the Chicago World's Fair. He was so funny that WLS offered him a job on the barn dance. You may not know Pat Buttram by name, but it's possible you know his voice. Everybody everywhere will say Clint Eastwood is the biggest yellow belly in the West. Some know him from the TV show Green Acres. Some may know him from Back to the Future 3 or the Goofy movie. But my lasting fondness for Pat Buttram comes from his voicing of the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood. Uh-oh. Here comes old bad news himself, the Honorable Sheriff of Nottingham. Every town 
as the taxes too, and the taxes is due. Do, 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 do. Well, looky there. <laughs> Friar Tuck, the old do-gooder, he's out doing good again. I know that we're all being Midwestern here, and we're not stirring up needless controversy, but there's something I have to say. Robin Hood is the best Disney animated feature, and Roger Miller's Not in Nottingham is the best Disney song. Oh, sorry, but it's true. Every town has its ups and downs. Sometimes ups outnumber the downs. But not in Nottingham. Anna Carr from Grand Rapids, Michigan probably disagrees with me. I think most of your entertainers are fine, and we keep tuned in a greater part of the day, but you have one on your program, Pat Buttram. Well, we always listened to the early morning program until he was put on the air. Now we tune out all programs he is in. It's too bad to spoil a good program with just one. Not wishing him any bad luck, but we hope there will be a change in the near future. Of course, not all letters were complaints and criticisms. Those are just the ones I find more amusing. Fans had a lot of great things to say about Grace Wilson. Here's an impressive one from Mrs. Jean Warner from Chicago, Illinois. I thought you might be interested in my record. About 14 years ago, I heard Grace Wilson on the radio and have followed her through all these years. Occasionally, I would jot down the names of the songs she would sing. But since the 1st of 1934, I have kept a complete record of every song Grace has sung, where she sang it, when, and the occasion why. For instance, if it was for a birthday or a wedding anniversary or any other occasion, I made a note of it. I put down the name of the announcer and the accompanist. Since I have been keeping a record, I have heard Grace sing 3,500 times, singing 796 different songs. I have missed only three programs. Besides keeping the record, I also try collecting the songs she sings. It has been very interesting to keep this record, and I hope I can keep on with it for years to come. Mrs. Ernest Taylor of New Bern, Tennessee. I so enjoy hearing our Grace Wilson sing. She's just too grand. I've heard her sing so many sweet songs, such as Honey, Stay in Your Own Backyard and others. I could listen all night to Grace Wilson singing her songs. It just does something to you now, doesn't it? Mrs. Roy Froderman out of Cory, Indiana says, Received my family album and sure enjoy it, but I don't think Grace Wilson looks like herself. She's much better looking than her picture, and I've seen her in person. We join with Jean Warner in wondering why Grace Wilson is not mentioned in the magazine more often. Her songs are from the heart and sincere. I think she's one of the finest and grandest people in the world. She found time out of her busy life to extend a kindness to us that we will remember always. Last year when my father passed away, I mentioned it in a letter to Jean Warner. Then, just a few days later, my mother and I received a wonderful letter of sympathy from Miss Wilson. Mrs. Warner had told her of my father's death. It is certainly fine just to know that there are people like her in the world, and the gratitude we feel for that letter and the beautiful songs she has sung for us is straight from our hearts. That one so famous could give her valuable time to comfort nobodies. That is surely true greatness. W. L. Malchow out of Swamico, Wisconsin. 
I'm wondering if anyone has a soul so immune to music that would not passionately enjoy every selection Grace Wilson has ever rendered on her Sunday morning program. We trust that she will be with us with her sweet songs for a long, long time. These letters go on and on, and these are just the ones that were printed in the magazine. Thousands more came to the WLS offices. I mentioned earlier that the National Barn Dance exceeded the Grand Ole Opry in the number of women featured in its programming in the 20s and 30s. We'll spend this season looking at the superstars like Lulu Bell, Patsy Montana, and Lily Mae Ledford, among many others, each with fascinating stories of their own. But it's interesting to me to see how each woman portrayed on the National Barn Dance held an image that was maintained throughout their career. This image, as we'll see in the case of Lily Mae Ledford, was sometimes foisted on them somewhat unwillingly. Others seemed to come to the station fully formed with a radio-ready personality. For Grace Wilson, the bringing home the bacon girl and the girl with a million friends, we've heard how fans responded to her persona. Here's how Grace described herself. I'm not a glamour girl, and I haven't tried to be. I'm a homey person, and I like people. Just Grace Wilson, your old friend and neighbor, singing the songs everyone likes to hear. My whole heart goes into every song I sing and every word I speak. Nothing makes me happier than the kind letters from listeners, and to know that my efforts have given joy to others. Many blind persons have become my friends through the years on the air, and their requests are always taken care of first, theirs and those of the old folks, who never seem really old to me. I have no reason to doubt that Grace Wilson is sincere. Had I been a loyal National Barn Dance listener in the 20s and 30s, reading Standby Magazine and the WLS Family Album, I may even have had a similar opinion as her letter-writing fans. If you could see my hidden Spotify playlist, you'd see my embarrassing penchant for obsessive cataloging of music, so I may have even joined the ranks of Jean Warner in her detailing of Grace Wilson's songs. But the skeptic in me most likely would still be wanting more. Not more wholesomeness, necessarily. More that would make me feel empathy for Grace, or at least something imperfect. Something I could relate to. I would love to know more about her early vaudeville days, her wandering around the country with her mother, how that time away affected her relationship to her father and brother, and how all of that traveling and performing shaped her life. We can find some bits of information that point to a more empathetic or sympathetic life. One standby issue asked different barn dance stars about their Halloween costumes. Here's what is said about Grace. Having grown up on stage, songstress Grace Wilson never had much of an opportunity to go to kids' parties. As a youngster, she always looked forward to Halloween because it was the one time of the year when the grown-ups acted like kids. I liked to duck for apples and never minded getting my face wet in the old washtub of water if I could sink my teeth into one of those bright red apples, Grace laughed. I have good, strong teeth and like to get a good big bite of apple. Okay, strong apple-bobbing teeth aside, we get the sense of loneliness for Grace's childhood, surrounded by adults with little chance to play with other children. A standby subscriber asked about her family, to which the magazine responded that she lives with her brother Gus. Perhaps there was a reunion with Gus after her vaudeville days, after her husband passed away. I would like to know more about that. One issue has a picture of Grace Wilson with fellow longtime WLS performer John Brown. 
In reference to holiday plans, the caption reads, Here are two old-time haylofters who really love their work, even-tempered and happy smiles for everyone. John's back home in Kansas visiting his folks. Grace, it looks like you never get a chance for a vacation. In another issue, the stars were asked what they want for Christmas. Grace Wilson says, Nothing big. Then I know I won't be disappointed. Yikes. Here's another picture caption. Grace Wilson, seated in her suburban garden with three half-Persian kittens. She found their mother outside WLS Studios last fall. Problem now is to find good homes for them. Any offers? Another final attempt to understand Grace Wilson through the lens of National Barn Dance Publications is in how she's portrayed through the years of the WLS family album. 1932. You have known Grace for a long time, too. She sometimes sings with a rhythm that makes you want to snap your fingers and tap your feet, and sometimes with that deep sentiment that makes a catch in your throat and moistens your eyes. 1935. Another beloved veteran of WLS is Grace Wilson. You have often heard us refer to her in announcements as the girl with a million friends. This phrase, which is certainly true, originated a number of years ago, before Grace ever sang for the radio, when she was appearing behind the footlights of Broadway. They wondered then what was the secret of her ability to make friends, so that people who saw her and listened to her sing never forgot. We can tell the secret. It's because she is so friendly, so genuine and sincere. That's why you like her. 1936. She likes people, which is why people like her. 1937. It takes a lot of living and a lot of understanding of folks to sway a crowd the way Grace Wilson does. She loves folks and is called the girl with a million friends. 1938. Grace is an old trooper at WLS. Her red hair, bright blue round eyes, and her throaty contralto voice are all essential parts of the barn dance. 1941. Grace is still the girl with a million friends to grown-ups in the WLS audience, but to the boys and girls in the kids' club audience, she's known as Auntie Grace. And as Auntie Grace, she has a lot of fun trying to answer riddles sent in by her young listeners. 1942. Maybe sometime we'll tell you the story of Grace's life, for then you will know why she has such an understanding heart. Sometimes, if you listen closely, you may get a hint of her deep experience from the feeling and heartthrob she puts into her songs. 1946. It was a night in April 1924 when Grace first sang on WLS, the opening program. Few people understand the heart of our listeners so well as Grace. The calendar says she's a bit older than she was 22 years ago, but you never know it from her blithesome spirit. Mostly, she's been singing songs to remember. Occasionally, answering hundreds of requests, she still sings that gay shout, bringing home the bacon. 1947. Few performers possess the rare sympathy and understanding Grace expresses in her songs. Perhaps it is because very early in life she faced a personal tragedy. She was born at Owasso, Michigan. I don't think that's the tragedy they're referring to. 1951. From the joys and sorrows of her own life, Grace has achieved an unusual understanding of others. It shows in every song she sings. Youngsters of a new generation, hearing her, murmur in admiration. She's got something. Grace's last appearance in the WLS family album is in 1956. There's a photo of her on the front porch of her home. White vinyl siding, wrought iron railing, 
too small for a sitting porch. Opposite page is a photo of her holding a porcelain bird next to a hutch and shelves displaying figurines she collects. Grace Wilson, neighborly, winsome, sincere, exuding domestic rest on the air, did not remarry. She lived with her brother, she trained police dogs, she found a home at the National Barn Dance and did not appear eager to find anywhere else to be, even as rock and roll did its best to make her style of singing obsolete, even as younger, more glamorous stars of the barn dance transitioned to movies, even as WLS, in 1960, became a teen pop station. Grace Wilson sang on that final broadcast, just as she had done the very first one in 1924. She sent listeners off with a song, You Go to Your Church and I'll Go to Mine, and It's No Secret. She uttered the final words to be heard in the National Barn Dance. Good night, friends. Not goodbye, but just so long, and God bless. The road is rough and the way is long, but we'll help each other over. You go to your church and I'll go to mine, but let's walk along together. Thanks for listening to Wildwood Flower. Look in the show description for references and a playlist of songs that are in this episode. Artists, please submit your covers to me. We'll put it on the podcast. Next episode, Linda Parker, The Little Sunbonnet Girl. It's just a little 